This is a conversation with Peter White. He's a theoretical physicist and a senior lecturer of mathematics at Columbia University. He's one of the most popular critics of string theory and the author of the acclaimed book and blog, Not Even Wrong. In this conversation, we discuss his journey falling in love with physics and maths. We talk about theories of everything, twister theory, string theory, the nature of symmetry, and we talk about some of the biggest problems in academia today. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify or rate five stars in Apple Podcasts. This project continues to take a lot of my time, money and efforts. If you'd like to see it continue, do consider making a donation on Patreon, Anchor or Instagram. If not through monetary contributions, then do consider sharing these episodes, leaving your likes and comments. All forms of engagement, they really go a long way. For the forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter or follow me personally. And now, it's no time. I would like to start off with two quotes. The first is by Albert Einstein, the name might ring a bell, who once said that, Pure mathematics is, in its way, the poetry of logical ideas. The second quote is by Bertrand Russell, who said that the pure mathematician, like the musician, is a free creator of his world of ordered beauty. Around 50 years ago, you were poring over books of astronomy in a local public library when you pulled down this book on astrophysics, and you discovered that you really need to understand mathematics to understand the equations that calculate the structure of stars. Let's go back to that time. Let's go back to the 1970s when you first discovered mathematics. What was that feeling like? What drew you into maths in the first place? And like Einstein and Russell, were you immediately able to spot the poetry in mathematics, the creativity, the music, and the beauty of maths? Well, I, I should, it's actually a little bit different. I should make it clear that I actually first got really more seduced by the physics. So I was, I was learning the mathematics as I went along and I always loved mathematics. But um, the thing that really first seduced me was kind of learning about astro astrophysics and about astronomy, and then about the, um, you know, seeing that there are these equations which describe the interiors of stars, and that by solving this equation, you could see, understand what was going on inside a star, which yeah. I thought was amazing. So, <laughs> so I wanted to kind of know where, where do these equations come from? So, so part of it was the, um, you know, the amazing fact that mathematics could describe the world, but also the... Um, as I learned more and more, you know, it became clear that there, there were these kind of amazing deep ideas about physics that were behind this. And I, I again, started to learn more physics and really became very much seduced by the whole story of quantum theory and quantum mechanics, especially it's, um, which has this truly amazing history and, you know, and the whole history, it's a history of about physics and about philosophy, about people trying to understand um, the world in a very different way. And it's also a story about mathematics that there is also, um, it also really required new mathematics. So, so that was, that was kind of the, the initial pro progression later when I, when I, when I went to college, I actually ended up, I was majoring in physics, but I took a lot of mathematics courses. I took some very challenging mathematics courses and, um, I even took some graduate courses in math when I was undergraduate. So that was, but, but the beginnings were, more in physics, and and to me, the the interest in mathematics was always very much wrapped up with with the physics, with the fact that this um you know, th th this really beautiful abstract mathematics was not what w was showing up also at a very deep level in in the physics, and and that that was that so there's this deep connection between the real world and um and deep mathematics. 
Was there a point where your love for mathematics started to surpass your love for physics, or or you completely <laughs> deviated away from that path? Well, not not really. I think it, it, it's always to, to me the always what's always been most fascinating is the way the two are linked. Right. And so I um I started out my career in physics. I got a, got an undergraduate degree in physics, and a PhD in physics, and had my first post postdoc were in physics. But um, throughout all that time, you know, I was very interested in the the mathematics behind behind the physics, what was going on, and my um, my PhD research project was, you know, it, it was about physics, but but it, it it involved some very challenging mathematics. It involved you know some a lot of a lot of topology and geometry, and so yeah. so from early on, that's true. And then when I got a postdoc, I went to uh, to Stony Brook to the Institute for I was at the Institute for Theoretical Physics there, mm-hmm. but it was. Um, it's actually in the same building as the math department. It's not in the building of the physics department. It's kind of the top floor of the mathematics department building. And so I actually spent, I ended up actually spending, I think, more of my time talking to the mathematicians there than to the to the physicists because I was more interested. I was learning more from them than from. I wasn't so interested in what was what the physicists were doing, and and so that was kind of the beginning. And then from there, there's a long story about my career, but I ended, ended up. One reason for ending up in mathematics departments was that you know, I could actually get a reasonable job in a math department, which was not so easy in physics. But if if the job situation were different, maybe I would have stayed in a physics department. Yeah, we will definitely talk about the job situation. But I have a follow-up question for you here. Edward Frankel, professor of mathematics at University of California, Berkeley, he had once said in an interview that mathematicians are insulated from society because it is such a pure subject. It draws in very specific psychological types. For me, mathematics was a refuge from the cruelty of life. <laughs> in your book, Not Even Wrong, you talk about the divergent path that maths and physics had to take in the 20th century, where you have described instances where many physicists who were struggling with the problem, they could have easily solved the problem if they just reached out to the mathematicians in the same institution, or even shared the problem with the mathematician that they're having lunch with on a daily basis. What is your take on the current state of maths today? Do you think people in academia still feel that mathematicians are working on really abstract ideas that have no connection to the real world that are not tangible at all? Or do you think it's time to come together again after that fork it took in the 20th century? Or maybe I'll go as far as saying they have to come together if you have to solve any of the problems. Uh, I, I think it's, I mean, one reason I wanted to write a lot about it in that book was that I think it's actually a very complicated story. And there, there's, there's really, to, to me, it, it, it um, you know, it, if you look at it, it's it's a it's a complicated and really fascinating story, especially the story of how of the relationship between mathematics and quantum mechanics, of figuring out what the um, how to understand quantum mechanics and mathematics. And it um, so so it, it's it's a complicated story of you know in some ways things diverging, but also things coming together and and continual discovery of these you know fascinating deep points of contact between the subjects. And so I think you know probably the the last great period of that was actually in the um, 80s and 90s, you know, and especially through the work of uh, Edward Witten and, and other people. There were mm-hmm. some just, uh, um, especially Witten together with the mathematician Michael Atiyah, there yeah. were some really, they, they just made these amazing breakthroughs and understanding of, of new, new ideas at a very deep level of how quantum field theory and geometry and mathematics were related. And that... Um, you know, since since then, I think that that subject you know has become less active. But now, now I think it's a very interesting situation that I, you know, when I was hired at at Columbia by the math department, I think one reason I was hired was that that was 
there was a lot of interest among mathematicians in what was coming out of physics and what Witten was doing. And they saw me as someone who, okay, we should have someone around who understands that and, and do that. Um, more recently, I think there isn't any kind of central, really active thing like that that's revolutionizing the subject. But uh, it, it's kind of dispersed. And, and if you look at what my colleagues are doing in the math department, you know, they're almost all of them, you know, if you look anywhere from people working on geometry to work at people working on probability theory to people working on uh, even even number theory, there's there's some connection in their work to ideas from physics. So it, it's become much more dispersed. I mean, I, th I think it would be great if there'd be another, you know, huge advance in some new kind of deep understanding, which um, like there was in the 90s, but in, 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 it, not right now, it, it's, uh, it's, it's become an interesting situation that there's there isn't a single point of contact that everybody is very aware of, but there are small points of contact kind of, kind of going on everywhere. So it's. Do you have an intuition about where that central theme or the central equation or problem will come from in maths? I don't know. I mean, I have my own speculations. I mean, one, one thing that I'm very fascinated by, increasingly fascinated by in recent years is um, kind of very recent work in, in number theory. Yeah. And that there's, um, there have been some 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 really the truly great advances that, I, that I've been seeing in mathematics in the last few years have been in in, in number theory. Very quickly, sorry, what is number theory? Um, just just the you know the the, um, the study of of, of the pat patterns in, in numbers about you know patterns of prime numbers or their famous problems like um, Fermat's last theorem can do you know do these very simple equations have solutions? Does Riemann's hypothesis numbers. also fall under Riemann's hypothesis, something, yeah. something. But there's a, um, there's been a, a very important kind of unifying idea about what's going on in number theory called, called the Langlands program. Right. Um, and that's been going on since the sixties, but, but just recently, the past few years, um, there, there've been some breakthroughs in understanding about the relationship between geometry and, and number theory. There have been some new ideas about how geometry and number theory work together. And 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 some of the these these ideas about geometry that, that, that are occurring in number theory, that they are very much the same or similar ideas to um to to exactly some of the things that were going on when I said in this great period of breakthrough in um in the nineties about the relationships between geometry, topology, and, and physics. Yeah. So that whole story has started to, um, anyway, there, there's some recent breakthroughs in number theory that, that may actually make connection with that story. So, you know, if I had to guess, you know, where some great breakthrough to understand it would come through, come from it, of the sort that I'm, I'm interested in, it would be more in, in, in you know, that f further work on these, um, these connections between number theory and geometry and, and, and to actually see structures there, which, 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 which connect up to some of the very fundamental structures in, in our understanding of physics. You have made your prediction for maths. Let's talk about one central problem that's plaguing physics for the last 30, 40, or even yeah. more than that years, which is the problem of the search for this elusive theory of everything. So let's introduce this topic. What are grand unified theories? And then what is the theory of everything? What is the problem we're trying to solve? What are we trying to unify? Okay, so what, what happened? So when I 
you know, um, so, so I went to, went to college. I went, went to Harvard College in 1975. And that was a period and started, you know, work, studying the physics department there. That was a period that was just two years after kind of this, this huge set of breakthroughs, which culminated in 1973 in, um, in, some, in something which is now called the standard model. So there, there's, there's this, this, this kind of beautiful mathematical structure called the standard model. It, um, it was developed you know, throughout the 60s and, and, and kind of came together in 1973. And it, um, it just does an amazing job. It, it does too good a job of kind of explaining everything about what, what particles do. So every, everything that we see when we um, study particle interactions, and, and no matter how high in energy you collide them at a collider or any, whatever experiment you do to any accuracy, this, this theory describes it perfectly. And it, uh, you know, and, and so it was a lot of the people who had been responsible for developing it were at, were, at, were at Harvard and they were, so it was kind of, it was this huge kind of era of, of triumph there. There's all this new data was pouring in, which um, agreed perfectly with the theory. And so, you know, some of the great people who had been like um, Glashow and Weinberg and who'd been working on this for the last decade, you know, they were being kind of completely vindicated and it, it was, it was an amazing time. And, and then, but, but there, there's a, so there, there was actually kind of an ambitious idea around the same time. It li literally, you know, a year or two after the standard model first came in 1973, around the same time, there was also this, there was also a, beginnings of attempts to kind of further unify, to, to take the standard model has several, has a few different pieces in it. And the idea was to, uh, to try to find some kind of way to, to fit those pieces together into, into something which would be um, in principle, you know, explain a bit more and predict a bit more than the standard model. Mm -hmm. And that was what these so-called grand unified theories. And, and actually the people at, again, it was people at Harvard who were main people doing this, uh, Howard Georgi and Shelley Glashow. And that, um, yeah, so, 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 so these are called grand unified theories. And, and that's, it's really an attempt to, um, to do better than the standard model and to, to have a more unification, to unify like the strong and the weak interactions together. And so that's, that, that's great unified theories. The, the, I mean, the other big open question then remains is, is what to do about gravity. So there's, besides the standard model, there's a, you have a very good theory of gravity, how gravity works due, due to Einstein from, uh, from, from nine, from early in the 20th century. And that that theory has some in, intriguing relations to the standard model. It uses some of the same geometry, but it has, if you try and treat it the same way as the standard model and you try and try and quantize it the same way that you get into technical problems. And and so so that's that that's was kind of the other big open problem is, is what about um you know what about bringing what about getting a consistent quantum theory of gravity? And then, and the the hope was that you know you would solve, you could maybe solve both of these problems. You could get a green unified theory, and also one that included an explanation of gravity. And that's the sort of thing that people would often call kind of a theory of everything. Yeah. So at that point, you brought together all of the known kind of fundamental theories we have in physics. But so it's a a little it was a, I think a, somewhat of a, a joke to to call it that. But that's a Anyway, that's what, typ tip what people typically mean by that. Yeah, so many jokes in physics have just stuck. Like Big Bang was all, the name <laughs> yeah. was meant to be a joke, and now that's stuck as well. Why did why is there a need to unify 
theory of general relativity and quantum mechanics, these two tenets in physics that work really well independently. But why does this need to bring them together? Well, I mean, <laughs> to, to, to my mind, the, the best argument is one of, of aesthetics that you've got these, <laughs> you know, why you got these things that look kind of the same, but not, but they're somewhat different that you, re, you really should actually properly understand what the real relation between them is. And, but there's, I mean, the other good argument is, is one of kind of consistency. You can kind of, unfortunately, they're, they're not um, the sorts of things you can go out and experimentally test because the, uh, the energy regimes are, are, are too far from what we can create. But you can, in principle, create physical systems which where you would need both um, quantum theory and gravity are operating, you know, non-trivially together. And then the current theory doesn't, doesn't really have a good answer to what's going to happen if you, you know, in those regimes. So there is kind of consistency and, uh, and, and having a, a theory that really, you know, gives you an answer and all the time, all the times it's supposed to really require kind of a better understanding of, of how to fit them together than, than what we have now. Is it possible that maybe there isn't a theory of everything? They are meant to be two separate structures. It, 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 it's possible. Okay. But I would, I would just say that the, everything that we see, I mean, these things, I mean, they're not two completely different things. They're, they're, they're two things with a, a lot of close, a lot of really intriguing relations between them, a lot of the same mathematics. And, yeah. and one thing that's fascinated me right, that I've been very interested in re, in recent years, especially is, is, you know, re, thinking about reformulating gra There are a lot of different ways of, of mathematically writing down this, this gravity theory in different ways. And, and there, there are certain ones of them, which, um, look very much like the same structures in the standard model. And, and those, um, you know, I mean, th th these are not new ideas. People have been looking at these for years, but I, I've, I've certainly been kind of very fascinated by exactly how, how, how some of the exact, exactly how there, that there, there really are very good ways of thinking about gravity, which are not that well known, which are very, very, very close to what, what's goes on in the standard model. Quantum gravity is one of the problems that physics is trying to solve. We're trying to find the theory of everything that might bring them together. Let's talk about one theory that you have put forward that might be a step in the right direction, which is twister theory. But first, let's assume that I'm a five-year-old, not hard to imagine at all. Let's assume, well, it's a big day in my five-year-old life. I'm learning about a theory of everything, as all okay. five-year-olds do. How do you explain twister theory to a five-year-old like me? Okay, so I, I think I got to have to back up before... So, so back, back up and first talk about spinners. And I should say, and, and before I do that, I just make it also clear that so, so twister theory is an, an idea that's really mostly due to just Roger Penrose in the mm -hmm. 1960s. And, you know, there's, there's been a, a huge amount of work by various people on twister theory since the 1960s. And, and people have found out all sorts of interesting things about it. So what I've been thinking about recently has been... Uh, if you like a twist on twister theory, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, but, but really to, to explain it, to back up, I think it, it's better to, it's important to, 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 to really think about what to first to try to understand what spinners are. So twisters in some sense are something that goes beyond the idea of spinners, but, but, but spinners are, are very, very fundamental and very, very kind of un, not physically intuitive things, but, but, and, and with a really beautiful mathematical structure, but, so one thing to say about spinners is that they're really fundamental to our physical theory in the sense that 
what what people found, you know, way back when when they were studying quantum mechanics was that, you know, they were figuring out quantum mechanics by looking at atomic spectra, and they basically found out that every um, every kind of energy state of of an atom, which seemed to seemed to involve these electrons moving around in in the field in the field of a nucleus, that all of these energy states actually were were doubled. That if you look closely, you saw that there were actually two two energy states where there should be one, and you could and you could see one thing you could way to see this was by putting the atom in a magnetic field, and then the, then the energy levels would split a little bit. Okay. So, but so but there was this kind of this twofold doubling of everything of. So quantum mechanics was confusing enough, but all all of this, if you ask what's the state of an electron, you had to, all this confusing thing about its momentum, where its position, its momentum, Heisenberg's mm-hmm. uncertainty is there. Yeah. But you had this other weird thing. It, it, it had, it, it, it had kind of two, two states, not just one. Yeah. And so, and, and then anyway, so, so, so there, there was an, an understanding that you had to think about this new, this new kind of degree of freedom and it was, and it was called a, a spinner degree of freedom because it, um, it actually behaves, you know, it does something very non-trivial when, when you rotate a system. If, if you take a system and, and rotate it around, this, this thing, these, these two states kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of move around, these, these two states move around in between each other. So there's, there was something about this twofold extra degree of freedom, which was also involved with the, with the geometry, with geometry and with how, how the system behaved under rotations. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, I mean, as always to me has been one of the kind of great, great mysteries and, and, and one of the fundamental clues about, about physics that, you know, are all of the matter particles we know about have this property and so if you want to think about a fundamental theory and you want to think about it in terms of geometry, you really should be thinking in terms of the geometry of these spinners. So that's the physical motivation. Um, mathematically, if you start looking at the mathematics of it, we're kind of used to thinking about geometry in terms of vectors. Yeah. And, and so you have, but um, <clears throat> what you find when, when you, if you think about vectors in three and especially in four dimensions, if you try and put space and time together, mm-hmm. so you have kind of, four-dimensional space-time vectors that they, you can think of the relation between vectors and spinners in a sense that the, that spinners are square roots of vectors that you can, you can, spinners are objects you can, you can multi, you you can put two of them together and in a sense to create a vector. Okay. And, and the, the mathematics of this one way of stating the mathematics isn't so difficult. It's, um, everything is, a bit um, not so physically intuitive because you, you to do this you really need to work with complex numbers. Mm-hmm. But one thing you can do with um, to study to study vectors in four dimensions is to you know allow them to be complex, to have complex coefficients, and then think of them as as not as a list of four numbers like you normally do, but think of them as a matrix of two, a two by two matrix, two rows and two columns. And so it has four entries. And, and then you can think of the breakup into, into the spinners is, is the breakup into the rows and columns. A a matrix in some sense is a product of the rows and its columns. And that's, that's, that's very precisely the relationship between in four dimensional geometry between complex vectors and spinners. 
the spinners are exactly, the vectors are exactly two by two complex matrices. The spinners are exactly the kind of rows and columns. The rows and columns are also real and complex numbers? Well, everything is complex. So, so okay. this, is the, yeah, this is what I've been struggling a lot with in recent years, which, uh, which I think is very, so the, the, the whole, the really strange thing about the theory of spinners, I mean, one of the strange things is that the theory is actually fairly simple. I mean, what I told you is pretty much, that's kind of all there is to say about it as long as you just deal with complex numbers. Mm -hmm. But your problem then is that, you know, the, so your space and time are now have four complex dimensions and that's not right. They should be, you should have four real dimensions with, with one of them time behaving in some way different than, than this, the spatial ones. Yeah. So you need something in mathematicians called a real structure. You need some, some underlying thing that if you, that, that if you throw if you throw the complex numbers in, you'll you'll get you'll get this um, these two by two complex matrices, and it turns out mathematically that they're different. You can create different four real dimensional things, very different real four dimensional things. Which um, when you, when you throw in complex numbers, you get these matrices, and so that's that's the mathematics where the mathematics get 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 gets tricky and gets very interesting, and where I think there's actually some things to say which people haven't. Uh, yeah, haven't so much appreciated before, but but that spinners and twi twisters in some sense are okay. So so technically, the, 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 well, maybe it's not a good idea to start with that. But maybe here here's one way to say to say it is that uh, so the what what. The spinners are telling you what they're telling about the real world is if you want to describe the state of a of an electron, you have to um, describe it. It's described by a spinner. So if you just look at a point, that state is described by these two complex numbers. So I recall these spinners all have to be complex. So there's um so there these there's this kind of two dimensional complex space of the spin degree of freedom at every point. Mm -hmm. okay? So what 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 one way of saying what twister theory says is that twister theory says that really the way you should think about geometry is that um, you should think of it as as a, a four complex dimensional space, and uh, and with these two the the with if you want to know what a point is, a point is is is, is a two complex dimensional subspace, so it's a if, if you like thinking more in terms of real geometry, it's kind of a two-dimensional plane inside inside a four-dimensional space, except everything is complex. So, so in twister theory, this the two-dimensional plane is a point. If you if you want to know what is a point in space and time, well, it's it's a two-dimensional plane in a four in this four-dimensional twister space. Gotcha. And the um, so one of, one of the beautiful things that that this does is that it makes you know, in, in nor our normal understanding of geometry, you know, what a s these spinners are very mysterious objects. You know, why are you taking square roots of vectors and what's going on here? And from the point of view of twister theory, it's completely tautological. If you are, if you want to know, if you ask the question, why, what is this spinner degree of freedom space at a point? Twister theory tells you it is the point. The point is that two-dimensional complex plane. So, the these kind of answers to you know why spinners and where do spinners come from becomes just tautological. It's just it it, it just uh, 
And, but, but, but the twister theory is a very, very different way of thinking about space and time because you know, points are these complex two-dimensional planes. And so it, it's a very, the geometry is very different. And it's, um, anyway, maybe that's yeah. <laughs> enough development of that for now. Just so I summarize that correctly, instead of imagining points in space-time, now you're imagining those points as planes within a much higher four-dimensional space. space yeah. And once you reimagine those points as those planes, it's created it's entirely new structures that you can now start working with and create some fantastic branch of mathematics that you can work with. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it, 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 it you know, once you do this, I mean, all sorts of nice things happen. I mean, then, you know, there's, there, there's various symmetries of the situation become much, uh, much clearer. Anyway, the, you, you can use all sorts of methods. Everything is now a complex numbers so you can use methods from complex analysis which are very powerful to study things and and just just all sorts of kind of beautiful stuff happens and but but this this stuff was kind of i mean as penrose first realized this and then lots of people in the 70s and 80s work, worked out a lot of the details of this only mathematicians can get really excited about working with complex numbers the rest of us <laughs> yeah. would prefer staying in the real world okay so that's twister theory why is that a step towards the theory of everything, or maybe finding some form of quantum gravity. Well, so, yeah. So, 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 so Penrose, when he developed it, was, he was very, um, yeah, Penrose wasn't, he, he came out of a tradition of studying general relativity. So he came up with these ideas by studying general relativity. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and this, this Einstein's theory of general relativity is a geometrical theory. And so rethinking, Einstein's theory in terms of twisters gives you, you know, kind of a new way of thinking about Einstein's theory and there are new things you can do. And, um, and, and, and this is what, um, you know, one thing that Penrose and his collaborators were, were really fascinated by, but, but what, the, what they found was that it, you know, while there were some really interesting things you could say about general relativity and gravity and geometry this way, it, it, it didn't really, it didn't really kind of quite work. And one way of, of saying the problem that, um, the basic problem is that twister theory is what um, physicists sometimes call a, a chiral theory, that it, it, um, it, it behaves differently if you mirror reflect things. If you do a mirror reflection, um, you get something different. That's chirality. So that's chirality, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we we talk about it in terms of things being right and left-handed, that, you know, your your right hand, if you look at your right hand in a mirror, it looks like a left hand. And so there, um, there's kind of two, they're, 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 two, states, two, they're, they're two different things. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and, and the, so the twister theory is very much a, a chiral theory that, you know, that there, the theory of spinners, the way you normally do it, you say that you, you have two kinds of spinners. You have, and these two kinds, because of the way they behave under rotations, are sometimes called right and left-handed spinners, or positive chirality and negative chirality spinners. And um, the, the, what twister theory is telling you is that a point is a spinner, but it's telling you a point is a right-handed spinner. Or you have to, you have to make a convention, right or left-handed. But a point is one one-handedness of spinner. It is not... And the other handedness spinners are something different. And so the, as a theory of geometry, it's very much a, a chiral theory. It really treats right and left differently. differently. And the problem with general relativity, at least in its normal formulation, is that general relativity 
is not a chiral theory. General theory, general relativity is parity symmetric theory. So, um, so what Penrose and I think and the people working with them, I ended up finding out was that you could do beautiful stuff with the twister theory, but it only gave you um, kind of, <laughs> it only gave you part of general relativity. It just gave you part of it. And um, because it, it didn't, it just gave you in some sense, the right-handed part, not the left-handed part. Or if you wanted the left-handed part, you had to, and, and you, you had to get it, you had to get it, get it separately. But the, the two are different things. And, and Penrose actually, I think, called, it, called this the uh, the googly, googly problem. Googly problem, yeah. So cricket from cricket. So yeah. it's something. Else. But um, so but I think one thing that I think you know Penrose realized and had fascinated people in the subject a long time was that while gravity is a <clears throat> is a parity symmetric theory, it's non-chiral. The our the standard model is is a chiral theory. So especially the part that describes weak interactions. You know, the weak interactions, um, the left-handed spinners and the right-handed spinners behave quite completely differently. They experience different forces and they behave differently. So the um, so, so there's always in the back of people's minds of an idea, you know, can we, you know, can we use this to, um, you know, could we somehow use twister theory to explain you know, this, this stuff about the weak interactions, about the, 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 the thing that actually is chiral. So, but, but there never really was a, I think a really plausible idea about that because the problem was the twister theory was really kind of a theory of space time geometry. And our understanding of weak interactions is that the weak interactions are something that don't have to do with space time geometry. They're kind of so-called internal degrees of freedom, which don't have anything, you know, you do rotations or translations, nothing happens to them. So, so the, the ideas that I've been playing with in recent years, um, are a, a, a way of, uh, of putting these things to, uh, putting these things together of, um, anyway, at least, at least conjecturally, I mean, I'm, I'm, I should say, make it very clear. I'm, I'm very far from having, a, a an understood and completely written down theory, which I can, can sell, but, but I, I do, um, I've been playing with some different ways of thinking about twister and spinner geometry in which you, um, you know, and I've been recently kind of using the slogan of saying that space time is right handed yep. and saying that, yes, that you really can completely describe all the space time degrees of freedom in terms of right handed spinners. And then these, the other parody, I think the left handed spinners don't actually, which are not, which in the standard way of talking about twister theory and, and gravity, you, you have to use both to talk about space and time. I think there's a way to, to just use the right-handed ones to talk about space and time, and then to use the left-handed ones to talk about the weak interactions and, uh, and to try to bring the, bring the phase together. But um, this requires kind of re rethinking kind of the, the whole subject at its, at its basics, and, and um, that's kind of the project I'm in the middle of. And so to, to me, this all looks very promising. I see... I'm I'm very excited about this, but uh, I should say I haven't had a, that much luck in get in getting other people equally excited so far. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Well, that changes after this episode. Oh yeah, yeah. well this was everybody. Yeah. Everyone's watching. <laughs> so that's very interesting. So what you're trying to say is these two states. So space time is right-handed, and you're trying to create a theory for let the electro weak force being left-handed. And if you're able to bring them together, then that would be effectively a way towards unifying them, right? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to I want to touch upon 
an argument that was presented to Sir Roger Penrose that I would like to now present to you. I believe Twister Theory works in four dimensions, right? And doesn't work beyond it. Right. Right. So the argument that was presented to Roger Penrose was, you seem to be wedding yourself to the reality that we see, which is four dimensional. So three dimensions in space, one dimension in time. Whereas other physicists out there are leaving the options open and they are assigning a Bayesian prior to a hyper-dimensional reality. So more than four dimensions in space. Do you think that's fair criticism, fair argument that you're not leaving the road, I mean, you're not leaving this gate open to multiple dimensions and you're wedding yourself to the idea there are only four dimensions in reality? Well, I mean, that's true, but I, I, I think that's actually a strength of this, not a criticism. I mean, the problem with, with most other ideas about unification, about theories of everything or unification is that they, they work in any dimension and they, and they often work by putting together lots of extra stuff from extra dimensions. Uh, I mean, twister theory is really rigidly about four-dimensional geometry. But, you know, we live, you look, let me look around you, there's three space and one time dimension. So, yeah. so, it, so twister theory kind of, you know, I mean, string theory is like to, like to say that, oh, string theory predicts this. But so, I mean, if you want, you can say, well, twister theory predicts we live in three in four dimensions. So, you know, we, you, you already have a, a, you know, a verified experimental prediction of, of, of twister theory, which yeah. uh, is, is in, in some sense very non-trivial. Is it possible that, Twisted theory as well might be like a like a projection or a compactification of an even bigger theory that applies to multiple dimensions. Yeah, maybe, and, and, and people have tried to use it in that way. But it, um, I mean, I think, I mean, the great thing about twisted theory is it's very rigidity. The fact that it, it really is, there's not, you know, the, the there's this basic beautiful structure and, you know, you can throw more stuff in, but the minute you do that, it gets a lot more complicated and ugly. If you want the really beautiful structure, it's, it really is a four dimensional structure. And so, but, but, but that, that's kind of its virtue. So I don't, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, the problem with, all, with pretty much any attempt to kind of, you know, to use extra dimensions in, in fundamental theories, extra space time dimensions has been, none of these things in some sense have gone anywhere that there, there's just too many possibilities. The minute you start allowing yourself to throw in extra dimensions, there's, there's infinite numbers of possibilities and you can kind of get anything you want out of it and you kind of lose any kind of predictivity or any kind of rigidity of the structure, which, um, anyway, that's so, so that's, so I actually see this as a, a virtue that, you brought up beauty. Let's go there. Okay. I would like to assign beauty with all with simplicity as well, because most of the complicated equations end up looking quite ugly to me. So I'm going to read a saying, a popular saying in science, which is, this was about mathematics, but I guess it applies to science in general. The essence of mathematics is not to make simple things complicated, but to make complicated things simple. Yeah. You just spoke about beauty, about elegance, about simplicity. Do you think most of the fundamental laws in nature, most of the truth in nature is backed by really simple ideas that are so elegant and so beautiful that the moment you see them, you know it might be right. Or do you think there's merit to the argument that now we have extinguished the extent of simplicity? And this is something John Hogan hinted at at the end of science as well, where now we've reached the ceiling of simplicity and anything beyond this point gets really complicated, especially in physics and maths. Yeah, well, anyway, I, I just... I just don't don't see it that way because I th I think everybody um you know, that that is a po a popular idea and I, I definitely I disagree with John Horgan and with a lot of about this 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 in particular 
Um, the because what what happens? You know, all the people who are saying this. Then, if you look at, they're saying, "Oh, you know, well, the simplicity is over. We have to do these more complicated things." None of the complicated, more complicated things they've done have worked. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's kind of like, yeah. So you know, if you know, if people were saying this, and then they did some more complicated thing, and they went out and did an experiment, and you know, the, the experiment showed that well, things worked exactly like this complicated thing. Okay, I'd have to say, okay, well, I guess that's what's happening. But, you know, they they decide to make things more complicated and they make a more complicated version of the standard model and they announce that this is what the way the world has to work. And then you you turn on an, your ex, new accelerator in Geneva and you find out that it just doesn't work that way. So, so, so that all of these things have really fallen on their face. So, I mean, my feeling has always been that, you know, we have, our situation is that you know, we had this really, these really beautiful theories of standard model and general relativity with a great deal of simplicity, a great deal of geometry, a lot going on. But, and the reason we're struggling is that we're, 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 I would actually believe we're fairly close to having a unified theory, a really a theory of everything, if you like. And that the, we're struggling because we, we're not there yet. We, we, we still are missing a couple, one, one or more kind of deep ideas about, how all these things fit together. And um, so we're kind of looking at this be- beautiful, but not quite right structure that still has leaves questions open and that still has things that you look at and go, wait, you know, how does that, why I mean, that doesn't seem to quite work right. And, um, but there, but there, there's no, but to me, all of this is evidence is that, you know, there is some, we're just in the situation that we've always been that, you know, we're, we, 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 the, the reason we haven't found something better, a better theory is not that there is no better theory, but that it's just, we haven't found a better theory yet. And, and, you know, if, if you were someday, someday, if you think about it long enough and get the right, get the right clues and work on that, you know, this, this will actually work out. But, okay. So Occam's razor does apply that most likely the most simple and the most beautiful idea is the one that's most likely to be right rather than the more complicated ones. Yeah. That's partly it's Occam's razor. Partly it's just a, it's just kind of an experimental fact. It's, it's a fact about, about the world that when you, when you develop these, start looking at these very fundamental theories and not try to find a theory that's describing some complicated situation, but you're trying to find a, a theory that's going to work in the, in the most basic and simple and fundamental um, questions, the, 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 these, these turn out to have the, have this beautiful, simple mathematical structure and, and often a very unexpected one. Often the simplicity is something that, um, you know, it's only after you see this new way of thinking and some new mathematical ideas that you understand this, this from a point of view where it looks simple. While we're on the topic of beauty and simplicity, personally, I assign to beauty symmetry as well. So I have to ask you a question about symmetry. In his book, The Tao of Physics, Fritjof Capra says the following words about symmetry, where he says, the discovery of symmetric patterns in the particle world has led many physicists to believe that these patterns reflect the fundamental laws of nature. During the past 15 years, a great deal of effort has been devoted to the search for an ultimate fundamental symmetry that would incorporate all known particles and thus explain the structure of matter. This aim reflects a philosophical attitude which has been inherited from the ancient Greeks and cultivated throughout many centuries. Symmetry, together with geometry, played an important role in Greek science, philosophy, and art, where it was identified with beauty, harmony, and perfection. 
the attitude of Eastern philosophy with regard to symmetry is in striking contrast to that of the ancient Greeks. Mystical traditions in the Far East frequently use symmetric patterns as symbols or meditation devices, but the concept of symmetry does not seem to play any major role in their philosophy. Like geometry, it is thought to be a construct of the mind. So what is your take <laughs> on symmetry? So many schools of thought, so many ideas, so many ancient traditions, so many current ideas as well, whether it's symmetry transformations, symmetry groups, symmetry breaking, supersymmetry, all of them are centered around this mysterious, beautiful concept of symmetry. Do you agree with the Greeks? And maybe this is something Herman Weyl as well alluded in this book, Symmetry, that symmetry represents something fundamental in nature? Or are you more in the camp with Eastern philosophers where you think it's just a construct of the mind, not necessarily fundamental? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, in, in this way, I'm very much a pure Westerner. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm with the Greeks on this one. So, yeah. And, uh, and, and the story of, of Capra's and, and his book, I think is kind of interesting that he, uh, you know, as I was saying, so, so this standard model came together with these new ideas came together in around 1973 and Capra you know, was trained as a physicist and, uh, you know, developed a lot of his ideas about the world, which he wrote about in, in his, in his book, you know, <laughs> just a few years before, <laughs> you know, in 70, 71 or whatever. So he, at the time, you know, before 73 and people figured this out, the, the most common attitude among physicists was that, well, you know, all our attempts to kind of you know, to, to come up with the, you know, to explain things in terms of new geometry and new symmetries have all been failing and it, it hasn't been working out. And that if, if we go and look at the, what happens with strongly interacting particles, they're doing all these complicated things. And, you know, there's, sure, there are a couple of symmetries, but the basic, it, it just gets more and more complicated. You start hiding these things at each other and they just do more and more complex stuff and there's no obvious symmetries to it. And so, you know, so, so the attitude, the most common attitude among theorists, you know, at least just before 1973 was that, you know, these beautiful symmetric theories were, were not, you know, couldn't, couldn't possibly capture what we were seeing. And so, you know, so ideas like uh, what Capra's talking about is, well, maybe you need some very different way of thinking about this in a fundamental way, which doesn't involve symmetry. And, and so, so that was the background in which he was kind of brought up and educated in which he started writing his book. But the problem for him is I think, you know, by 73, things had complete things in 73 started to completely turn around because people had, had used these symmetry principles to find, to finish the standard model and to find this incredibly powerful theory and all of these kind of complex phenomena that had been seen in accelerator experiments all of a sudden now had an explanation in terms of symmetries and in terms of this theory. So, so he, um, by the time he was writing his book, it was already, uh, you know, the, the situation of physics had, had already started to turn against him. And, and, and I think, yeah, so, 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 so that, that book, I think when it finally came out, it, it, it was already a little bit, it had already been kind of, uh, disconfirmed by, <laughs> But, but, you know, by what had happened in 1973, even though it, it took people a while, you know, to, to, to find the true experimental evidence for it and to, and to really, um, really believe it. And I, I'm somewhat suspicious that we're, we're in, we're in uh, somewhat of a current situation, because if you look at what's going on in physics now, there's also a lot of the th things that people are working on are 
Well, I mean, the, the technicality is a little bit different, but but we're, they're 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 somewhat they're they're actually closer to what people were doing, you know, in in Capra's time in in, in around 1970. Um, people were developing some ideas about very different ways to formulate physics, which didn't involve the same kind of deep symmetries at 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 at, at the shortest possible distances. And so they were doing something called S matrix theory. And, yeah. and if you look at um, the S matrix theory ideas of the late sixties, they're, they're, they're actually, they're actually much cl- that what people are, are a lot of people are doing now in theoretical physics is, is, is quite close to that, to that philosophy. And um, I, my, my suspicion is that we're in a similar situation that a few years from now we'll, we'll kind of realize that, um, just as those ideas weren't really the right thing to do in the late late sixties, that they're not the right thing to be doing now. That there is some new symmetry principle or some new idea about geometry which is going to come in and um, and, and tell you something new, which is going to explain these things that you're trying to explain in this much more complicated way. Okay, so you're firmly in the camp of Western philosophers. You think symmetry is fundamental. Do you think if you are in that camp, then you're also assigning a Bayesian prior to the design argument and the existence of a creator? I, <laughs> I, I, I don't really have any, I don't really see any kind of relation to that. So this is where, I mean. Well, symmetry could be intelligent design. It could, 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 could be, or it, um, yeah, I mean, where we, we, we are in this, uh, in, in this physical world and we have this amazing re- and complicated relationship to it and what the, uh, yeah, and anyway, what, what the underlying meaning of, of, of this existence in this world is, is I, I don't have any, <laughs> I, I, I don't physic I, I don't think anything, nothing that I know about physics or math really, I don't think actually tells you anything about that. I mean, it, it tells you about what this thing, what this thing is, but you know, whether, you know, I, our, our kind of relationship of our consciousness to it and our, um, and larger issues about, you know, where did this come from? And is it, is it part of something else? It doesn't, it, it's kind of a silent on that. I feel like it's like the sword that's hanging over you when you even, when you study twisters, as you start to unveil these beautiful structures, are you never, do you never wonder, like, has this been designed? Like, how is it the way it is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some one, I mean, there's another way philosophically of thinking about it is just that there is, is that it's, uh, it's kind of the only way possible for these, these, these things to work. I mean, it's kind of, maybe, I mean, that's in some sense, in some sense, one of the big mysteries is that, you know, we, there is this very deep relationship between this, these theories of reality and these mathematical structures but um and but mathematical structures as we normally think about them are much more general there are all sorts of possibilities and you could in principle have all sorts of fundamental theories but um but there's some so there's something very special there's kind of in in some sense there's one in some sense there's one mathematical structure which is which is kind of primary or or, or which is distinguished in some sense and that's the one that that governs governs the world and um you know why is that? Why that one? And uh, if we understand mathematics better, you know, maybe maybe it'll be there will become some 
some some clarity as to okay, if you really understand what mathematics is, what all what's the right way of thinking about the mathematics at the deepest possible level, it become clear, oh well, there's something very, very special and about one particular mathematical structure, and then that describes the real world. It's a very so I mean, it's a very pretty picture, but you know what how you want to relate that to any kind of normal human concerns is uh, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. I think that was a fantastic explanation of Twister theory as a five-year-old. I've been following, <laughs> I've not lost you so far. So that's amazing. I also came across this theory called string theory. You have definitively said that string theory is not a step in the right direction, but before we go there, just to quickly introduce a topic, what is string theory? Why did it originate? What problem was it trying to solve? Yeah, so so actually the origins of the theory is exactly in this um this the situation I was talking about of the late 60s, that you had you had these strongly interacting particles doing very complicated things, the standard kind of symmetries and the standard kind of ideas about uh quantum field theory didn't seem to work. So people were developing different ways of trying to describe this. And and, and one thing that they developed was, was was string theory, which one way of thinking about it is that you um if 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 in some sense our our other our most fundamental theories fundamental theories now really kind of involve kind of point like particles at at a, at a fundamental level that those are the elementary constituents that in um in string theory instead of having point like particles you have your elementary objects are kind of loops they're kind of one dimensional closed loops or maybe they've got ends and and uh, so so that so that actually that theory kind of just got going. You know, around 1970, and there were a bunch of people working on it. It was a very active subject at the time. And then 1973 came along, and with the standard model. And then once people started to realize how powerful the standard model was, and how this really agreed with this, this explained everything that people have been trying to explain now with string theory. By the time I was in, you know, got got to college and graduate school people had pretty much lost interest in string theory. It, it, it really, you know, it, it was clear that the problems it was trying to solve were better solved by these so-called gauge theories or by the standard model. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it's not, not, so, so some people, not, not everybody lost interest and it was, there were other people pursuing these things. And, and also again, by the time I was leaving graduate school in 1984, um, you know, people for quite a while had, had been, thinking about these problems of grand, unif- grand unification and theories of everything and quantum gravity. And what some of them had had decided was that you could actually, you know, while string theory hadn't worked out the way you had hoped for the strong interactions, you you possibly could use it to create a, um, a theory of everything. And so, and, and in 1984, there was... Um, there was kind of a technical development that one possible technical obstruction to writing out a certain kind of theory, um, it was shown to, va- to vanish in some, sp- in, in some peculiar, in some particular examples. And so that, um, got a lot of, some, some people very interested in, you know, trying to go back and pick up string theory and then use it to try to get a theory of everything. And the most prominent of these was, um, one of the kind of, this kind of great geniuses of our field, Edward Witten, who was a uh, really truly uh, amazing. Anyway, I mean, and just just an amazing person with amazing talent and amazing energy, and and he had he had already been you know 
finding out all sorts of new things about the standard model and about that kind of geometry. And he turned, he turned his attention to string theory and he kind of announced in the fall of 84, just around the same time I went to Estonia Brook for my postdoc that, um, this, that, you know, this, this is a really promising theory of everything, strings and, and, um, and, and he was really very, you know, people were, had kind of, were out of other good ideas about what to work on, on these problems. And he was incredibly influential. So a lot of people took this very seriously. And, um, I also know a lot of, most of my friends who were postdocs, you know, they all had kind of the same story. They all at some point would come to me and said, Oh, you know, I went down to Princeton to talk to Witten about what I'm working on and, you know, Witten listened carefully and nodded his head and said, Oh, well, that's all very interesting, but you know, you really should be working on string theory because it's, because this is really the revel. This is where everything is going. And, and so, you know, he had a huge influence in terms of turning the field to, 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 to string theory and, um, and, and, and string theory, string, but, but it, it I, w I was kind of always, I was kind of somewhat of a skeptic from the beginning because the problem with it was kind of exactly this problem with extra dimensions that we were talking about, that this argument that string theory made sense in some, in, in some certain situations, one of part of the idea was that the strings had to be moving in 10 dimensions. So you couldn't, you, you couldn't develop a consistent theory of strings moving in four in three space and one time dimensions. You could, it seems, developed a consistent theory of strings moving around in nine space and one time dimensions. Mm. So you had these 10 dimensions, you had 10 dimensions and, and one argument is, well, great, you know, we've got a kind of like twister theory, you know, okay, we know we've predicted the number of dimensions. The only problem is they're, they're predicting 10 dimensions, which is, and so, so you, you had to kind of explain, well, what about the other six dimensions? Where did they go? And so that that's where the theory all of a sudden became very complicated because the, the, the idea was that, well, we'll, we'll make the six, we'll make six dimensions are very, very small, so we can't see them. So four dimensions are going to be big, and you're going to be able to see them. Six of them are going to be really truly microscopic and so small we can't actually see what's going on. And you know, we can write down um, the mathematics and models of, of what these six dimensions do, and then depending on what the six dimensions do, you know, you're, you're going to... The string, you, the strings are going are going to um, you're, you're going to see different particles, and, and and the hope is that by finding the right choice of some very very small six dimensional space, you're, we're going to reproduce the standard model, and, and and at least at low enough energies, get something that looks like the standard model. That was the hope, and the people, Witten and other people who worked in this were very excited about this for at least for for a few years, but um, to, to me it was like. It, 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 this really, you were kind of telling me that a an incredible, incredibly successful theory, you should really throw the whole thing out and start again with a much with a theory which the minute you tried to make it look like the real world, you had to make do some very complicated things with. And I was kind of a skeptic about that, and and I, and, I, and I think properly. I think I think the the bottom line now, many decades later, is that you know initial hopes that there were only a very small number of things you could do to make the six dimensions work that were consistent. Now it looks like there's a, just a huge number of possibilities of what you could do with six dimensions and, and you can pretty much get anything you want out of it. So, you know, you can make, you can make a theory of everything, but it, it, it doesn't predict anything because depending on, it says that everything you see is going to depend on what the six dimensions 
do and what they look like, and they could do almost anything. It's it, it really it, it it really doesn't work. It really is a failed theory, and it's um I think the thing the reason I wrote this book was twenty years ago, and and to this day I'm just kind of shocked that how hard it is to get people to admit that this this really just doesn't work, and this is just not a this is just not viable, and 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 for for for, for quite clear reasons. Just to expand on that, Wolfgang Pauli used to say some theories are wrong and some <laughs> theories are not even wrong. You have said string theory is not even wrong. What do you mean by that? Why is string theory not even wrong? Well, I mean, <laughs> one thing I should say, well, let me say this later. First, so, 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 so not even wrong is, yeah, so it was kind of Pauli's phrase that, uh, you know, so he, 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 was, he was known to, he, he was heard. Actually, there, there, there's very interesting. I, I've really gone back into the, into the history, trying to figure out, did he really say this? And when, when did he say this? And what was it about? And it, it's a really interesting story. I mean, all the evidence is yet, yes, he really did say this, but people are not clear exactly when he said this or about what, or about who or about what, yeah. but he, he was known for like, he was kind of really pretty irascible and kind of a bit difficult to deal with. And, and so he was known for in a seminar, like shouting at people that no, you know, that's wrong. That's just wrong. And but then the story was that there, that there, he was asked about some particular thing and, or maybe it, some, one story says somebody was asking about it. Another story was, it was in a seminar, but, but he, he was in, in some, in some context, Emily just shook his head and said, Oh, that one, that one's not even wrong. <laughs> and, and you can, you can take this as being kind of really obnoxiously, Oh, well, that's so bad. It's not even at the level of being wrong or a bit more charitably. You can say that you know, there are lots of ideas that, you know, as theorists, we, we work with, when you start thinking about an idea, a good example of my uh, is, is that the ideas I'm, I'm playing with with twisters. I mean, these are also not even wrong at this point. There, there's no way to, they aren't fully developed enough to say, you know, this is exactly what they, what they are, are going to tell you. And, and either this is right or wrong. So, so not even wrong. can just mean in another context, this is, well, it, it's just a, a still unde, undeveloped idea, which, um, so, so, and, and it's, it's at the point where you just can't tell whether it's wrong wrong or not. And so that's the more charitable one. And, and I, I should say that over the years, my thinking about string theory has evolved. And when I wrote the book, I was being more charitable say, well, this is not even wrong. It's not fully developed, but I, I think the less of the last 20 years of seeing what's happened is that this just doesn't work. And, and now it, it's just wrong. I mean, it, it's just not, <laughs> I think actually not even wrong may not even be the right word for, it's, it's really not the word for string. <laughs> it's just a wrong, I failed idea. That's all there is to it. You have presented a case for why string theory is not even wrong, or it's just wrong now. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have no string theories here today to defend the case. So <laughs> I'm going to take up that responsibility. Go for it. I'm mm -hmm. going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to stand up for string theory in their absence. I'm going to list down some popular defenses of string theory against criticisms like yours. I would love to hear your thoughts on them. So let's start. Jim Gates, theoretical physicist at Brown University, he once said that, String theory is broken out into the consciousness of the general public before we are finished. Many benefits of exploring string theory are not spoken about. It has allowed us to think deeply about subsequent ideas like calculating the force between electrons, holography, weak strong duality. All of these are spawned from string theory. I'm going to add to that something Matthew Kleban said, professor of physics at New York University, who was on this show last month. He said that along the way of studying string theory, you learn about condensed matter systems, classical theories of gravity, superconductivity. I'll also add to that what Brian Greene said, your colleague at Columbia University. 
who said that string theory is a rich source of material that has kept people deeply engaged in moving the frontier forward. Do you think there's value in this argument that even if the primary thread of string theory, pun not intended, even if the primary thread of string theory is facing this dead end or it's not falsifiable, it's not productive, just continue to work with this framework is creating so many positive externalities and these powerful ideas like the ones they've listed? Well, yeah, I think the funny thing is all of those statements are actually perfectly consistent with my claim that it, that, you know, as, as a theory of everything, it is just wrong. And I mean, none of they're, they're not saying it isn't. And, and actually Gates, I think is, is an interesting thing because I've talked to him a bit and I know his work and, and, and he actually is somebody also who very early on was interested in string theory, but who I think also very early on understood exactly this problem that if you try to do, to do string theory in 10 dimensions, the problem of the other six dimensions is, is just going to make make it impossible because you'll be able to get either either you won't be able to find any way thing to do consistent with the six dimensions or you'll be able to get anything. So he he was always and always in his career has been very interested in string theory, but in in trying to resolve these technical problems of why, how do you get strings to actually work in four dimensions? So he you know he he's gone in his 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 own route and been interested in things, but um. But but I think he, he early on I think would would actually agree with me that what the the theory of everything that Witten was trying to sell everybody it was not going to work it was just wrong so that's an example but but all, all of them I mean they're all saying well okay you know this didn't work out as it was supposed to but you know because of it we've done all these different things and there's a very very long list Gates has his list Brian has his list Matthew Clevin has his list. Of all these things, and they're all, you know, I, 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 I mean, you know, it's, it's not that none of these things have any value, but, but, but to, to be honest, but you know, and they're the people who work on them are very often very enthusiastic about them, about oh, this is a, a great idea, and and it kind of evolved. So what's going on a lot is, is you see people now saying, well, string theory is great and string theory is wonderful because, you know of such and such a subject, which actually isn't string theory, doesn't have anything to do with string theory, but we started, we ended up working on it because of yeah. trying to solve problems in string theory. And, uh, you know, okay, but the, the problem with, with all, all of these things is that, you know, I, maybe not to name any names, but but one of the big problems with string theory was just the huge amount of hype that, that you know, the claims were made for it publicly which really just were were not true, which were unsustainable, which which really were were way excessive, and you know a lot of it is it was just due to, due to the enthusiasm of the people involved. I mean, what the story I told you about Witten, I think, is a good example. I mean, you know, he's a genius, he's brilliant, he was very enthusiastic about these ideas. So you know, people would come to them, and he would tell them, "Rob, what you're doing, work on strength theory. It's the greatest thing in the world." And but you know, <laughs> you know, he, he he was wrong. People are very enthusiastic about. The things they work on, you have to be enthusiastic about the things you work on to to um to keep doing it. But you know, a lot of anyway, if you look into into what the actual details of of, of what what these different people are, are are telling you about, they're um they're a combination of things which don't have all that much connection to string theory, and also ideas which. A lot of a lot of ideas which ha have been overhyped 
in some of the same ways and by some of the same people as, as string theory was. If I was a string series here today, wouldn't I challenge you with the same question that the work that you're doing with twisters is similarly, like you said, not even wrong. It's not falsifiable at this stage. So why would I not extend the same argument and say there's no point in pursuing this even further, even if you might discover something else along the way? Well, it's, um, yeah, I, I think I mean, the, the, what I'm doing is different j- just in the sense that it, it's very, you know, as I said, unfortunately, I haven't really gotten anybody else very interested in it. So, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not, I'm not the most, I'm not the most brilliant person around. I'm not the most energetic person around. So I'm kind of, I've been thinking about this and the more I see about it, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic and, and I th- feel like I'm making a slow progress, but, but this is just me, you know, working, <laughs> doing a lot of other things in life, working part-time on this and not the smartest guy around. And it's, um, you know, and I, I, you know, anyway, I think I'm getting somewhere and, 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 but, but this is not a, this is very different than kind of 40 years of the smartest people in the world and by the thousands working on something and, and it not working. It's a, it, 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 it's, a different situation let's do another defense of string theory in an article titled on the essence of discovery matthew kleban once again he said that what precisely is the definition of theories of physics and why must all of them live or die by experiment since long before the 17th century and even more so today mathematicians have unabashedly pursued abstract ideas with no connection to experiment whatsoever cosmology was almost entirely unmoved from experiment until the 20th century when advances in telescope technology made the relevant observations possible. He also cites the study of percolation that found real-world applications much later. And he ends with the essence of discoveries that you do not know what you will find until you look. Brian Greene also said something similar in an interview where he said, maybe we don't have the technology to work with the energy levels that string theory predicts at the moment. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't work at the moment because at some point technology will catch up like telescopes caught up with cosmology. And at that point, it will all make sense. What is your take on these? Well, I I think... Yes, yeah, so, I mean, one of the main misunderstandings of the argument I was making in my book and I was made is that I'm not, you know, I mean, there is a strong argument against string theory that, you know, it, that, look, nobody's tested it. You haven't been able to predict anything that, that you could go out and measure and nobody's actually done any measurement that agrees with it. So this is a promise. So, so that's, but as maybe it's clear from explaining kind of my views about mathematics and physics that I'm actually, you know, Ultimately, you want to have theories that you can test and you want to be able to assure that you're right. But I'm actually someone who that's not the primary thing for me. The primary thing is actually, you know, the do you have a really compelling new idea and really something that gives new new insight and, and, you know, at kind of the deepest structural level of this theory. That's and, you know, and I agree fine with Brian or with others who say, well, you know, you should pursue such things even if they're not testable. And I, I agree. And that's, that's fine. So my argument against string theory, my primary argument has, has never been that it's not testable. It, it, it's, it has always been that it, um, you know, yeah, it, it just doesn't explain anything and it, it doesn't actually, there is no kind of consistent set of equations you can write down that, that, you know, is compelling and that actually explains something. Uh, and so, you know, Yes, yeah, so, so so it's it's a bit of a, a of a red herring. I'm I'm actually on the same page as as a, lo- a lot of people and agree with them perfectly that yes, you could um you should we as theorists we should be pursuing things which aren't experimentally testable, you know, for for uh, you know by by other reasons and and 
I'm also a lot, I spend all my time in mathematics departments among mathematicians. Math, I mean, nothing anyone does in the math department is primarily testable, none of it. All that. So, so, you know, I, I see every day that, you know, there's this, you can make huge progress, you can get these new ideas, you can really get somewhere, you know, and by pursuing things away, which has nothing whatsoever to do with going out and looking at the real, at, and testing it in the real world. So, so yeah. I have to ask you a couple of questions about this movement and how it started and how it was sustained. Michael Shermer, the science historian, he once mentioned that Stephen Wolfram had approached him. Wolfram is working on his own theory of everything. He calls it a new kind of science and some powerful ideas about cellular automata and computation. And what Wolfram wanted to know was, how do you start a scientific movement? And Shermer's response was, most of the time, they're never top down. They're always bottom up. So you have to get grad students, researchers, professors, so passionate about the idea. It has to be so seductive, so attractive that they start espousing it. Why did string theory become so popular that it launched two super string revolutions as well, despite making no predictions, despite the lack of falsifiability? If this was going to be a case study that will be studied in the future, as a movement on a psychological level, why did it become so popular? Well, I think there are two things. I mean, one is that, I mean, the, the fundamental problem the whole field has had since 1973 is that the standard model is too good. It's just that, you know, literally every experiment anyone can do looks exactly like this. And so this is a very unusual situation that normally physics has been, you know, there've been these weird experimental results, which nobody can explain. And so everybody, and, and, and partly because of this, I think physics always had this kind of sociology of, it's very different than math. In, in, in math, there's kind of an idea that every people should kind of spread out and you should become expert in, on, on something and everybody should kind of do their own thing. And in physics, it, it's much more had a, um, a socio always a sociology of that, you know, this new accelerator was built, they turned it on, it found these totally unexpected things. You know, what's that about? How do we explain this? And what does this mean? Yeah. And everybody, so everybody works on the same thing. So, and, and, and everybody jumps in on it and starts working on it. And so that, so the problem was that then you then removed after in 1970, you, you then kind of removed that experimental impetus since 1973, there literally has not been an experimental result of that kind at all. So, and, and the things which seem to be experimental results of that kind actually turn out to be wrong experiments. So the, um, but but there's still the sociology that you should jump on the new th on the new thing and the new idea and everybody should try and figure out this one thing together and that's so when string theory came along there it, it had been like 10 years of this increasingly frustrating situation of not having a um, no 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 new progress in the model nobody knew how to do better there was no experimental clues and then you know so so then this idea came along and you know and it was like, okay, well, this, this is, this is something new that nobody's really tried before. And, and, and also it was very, it's very complicated. String theories are very complicated. What you can do with six dimensions is very complicated. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. So there is, you know, hundreds of obvious research projects of let's calculate what this six dimensional thing does. Let's find some other six dimensional things. And, and you had the great genius of the field telling everybody this, this is it, this is it guys, this is it. And so it, it really was, you know, I mean, it, it, over the space of a few years from 1980s in, into the late 80s, it, it really, um, 
anyway, it was kind of a feeding frenzy that everybody was everybody was changing what they were doing to try to do this. Yeah, sorry, not to say apologize for the interruption, but we keep bringing up Ed Witten and the genius of him. Why do you think he believes in string theory so passionately? If he is such a brilliant mind, then why is he not able to spot out the glaring problems with string theory? Well, I, don't, I mean, I think, you know, you, you, you fall in love with, with, with ideas. It's kind of, I, I think, I think the best explanation is it's like, you know, why does somebody lo- lo- love a certain other person? I mean, I don't know. They've, people fall in love with things and, and you can fall in love with, uh, with, with, with ideas and their possibilities. And he and some other people fell in love with this idea in 1984 and, um, Anyway, I'm not sure what else, what, <laughs> what else, and, and, is this a challenge? Sorry, is this a challenge most researchers face? Like you saw Einstein was so married to his idea that he couldn't figure out how to handle the cosmological constant, right? Which ended up becoming one of his blunders. Do you have this fear for yourself as well that you get so married or so well in love with an idea that you in a way get blinkered and you don't, like you don't expand your horizons in a way? Yeah, but I, I've, you know, I've certainly had throughout my career, I, you know, I've, I've come up with the various ideas I gotten interested in and I was very, ah, this is, this is great. This is wonderful. And, but I mean, the, the reason I'm actually very excited about the twisters is this is the, the first time that this is normally what happens is you do this and then you work on it for a few months or a year or two. And then you start, and as you work on it, you find out more and more things wrong with it. You yeah. find out more and more <laughs> this doesn't work. Or, or if you like this, whatever, the, your love interest, you start to realize, find more and more of their flaws and this doesn't. <laughs> the imperfections. <laughs> and, and. So, yeah, and then sooner or later you say, okay, well, that really wasn't such a great idea, so I better try something else. And but yeah. and, and that just anyway. This, so the question is more kind of why that hasn't happened, but uh, mm-hmm. the string theory, the but with with Witten, I think that there is a, a very interesting analogy to, to Einstein actually. So so Einstein also, you know, after general relativity, he he never really accepted quantum mechanics and quantum field theory and what these really really powerful ideas about about quantum theory and geometry, which ended up creating the standard model were things which, you know, he never was interested in. He didn't really want anything to do with that. He had a, a different idea and he, and his idea, he, he had this idea that I'm just going to, you know, I use geometry in a certain way to get general relativity. There are more things to be done with geometry. I can look at more exotic geometries. I can put in extra dimensions. I can, and, well, and, and those doing that, and and doing that is going to um, is going to give me a unified theory, a theory of everything. So so he that that's what that's what he, he that's what he was doing. And so he actually spent you know the last twenty or thirty year twenty years of his life or so at the institute, you know, working on in love with this idea of you know of generalized geometries are, are going to give me this theory of everything, and you know and you know, Witten's office is kind of just down the hall from where Einstein was doing this. And so it, it, it's not, you know, it's not, an, there, there is a precedent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In your book, there's a chapter titled The Only Game in Town, where you talk about this problem in academia. You describe this self-sustaining bubble that's being created around string theory and physics in general, which is now so toxic that if there's a grad student who wants to get a PhD or a research position, or a postdoc who's looking for a tenure track academic job, professors looking to publish the papers or looking for grant money for their summer salary. All of them have to play by the rules that have been set by the string theory community. Some have gone as far as calling it the string theory mafia that controls the community. 
which plays on this problem in academia, which has been developing over the years, which Eric Weinstein has coined, coined as the embedded growth obligation. Can you expand on this issue in academia today? If I was a grad student starting out today, why would it be tough for me to step away from string theory and explore my own thing and not play by their rules? Yeah, well, it's more complicated than that. And, and, and it's become even more so, you know, since I wrote the book. I mean, this book was written over 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, the, you know, what's it, so the, the, what's going on now is, is actually kind of strange is that, mod, you know, you actually, if, you're, if, if you remain a true believer in string theory and say, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to just keep doing exactly this because I, I believe this, despite what Peter White says, that it doesn't work. Um, you know, the problem is most, most other people in the field have actually realized this isn't working, that this, that this, this vision that seduced Witten and others in 84 has not panned out. You're not going to get a job doing that. You're going to have a lot of trouble getting a job doing that. So, so actually, you know, there are actually a lot of students who kind of, you know, as they're going along, they read Brian Greene's books, they you know, they they get very, they get very seduced by this and start to and believe this. And then they then start working on it. And they, they, these days they find they, they can't get a job either. They're, you're not going to get a job doing, I mean, maybe, maybe you can do it. It's very, very hard to get a job that way. So, um, but, but the underlying problem that I think drove all this is still the same, which is that this is a subject, you know, that's very, it's very appealing, very seductive. A lot of very smart people go into it. So, you know, in very rough numbers, I was looking at these numbers, I wrote the book, you know, in very rough numbers, you're talking about maybe a hundred, let's just stick to the U.S., you know, maybe a, maybe 50, 50, 100, 100 people getting um, PhDs in this subject in, 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 you know, this kind of fundamental theoretical physics, whether it's string theory or other things, yeah. and each year. And then if you look, you know, how many Ten permanent positions are there. New permanent positions are there doing this each year. And now you're talking about five to 10. So there's kind of a factor of 10 between the people getting PhDs and actually permanent jobs for them. So, so this creates a, a dynamic that, you know, if you want, if you get your, get a PhD, even if you get a PhD from Harvard or Princeton in the subject, you know, and you want one of those five permanent jobs, you really have to, you really have to do everything right. You really, I mean, one possibility is you can go out on your own and make a brilliant Einstein level advance and change the field to get a job. You you could do that, but, but, but if you're not Einstein and, and you just, and you want, and, and you're operating in a normal way, you know, you're, you know, in a, okay, I, it's not so hard to get a postdoc, but in a few years, I'm going to need a permanent job. What am I going to do? And, and, you know, I mean, the committees that are choosing the people for these permanent jobs, they're looking, what they're doing is they're looking at, you know, several hundred applications from very, very smart people, with all of whom have written a bunch of papers and done this stuff and all of whom have good letters. And, and typically what they then focus on is, okay, well, amongst all these people, you know, who's the, which of them are kind of working on, on a hot topic, on, on, on what is most promising and, and, and what everybody seems to think is the way forward. So there's this, the structure of the whole thing drives people into everybody back into this problem. The field already has of everybody working on the same thing. So there, there become some small number of 
you know, there's lots of new ideas around, but some small number of them kind of become the ones that are identified. Oh, this is the hot new idea this year. And, and if you, on, if you want a, a permanent job in the field, you better be working on one of those. And, uh, and, and if you decide, well, I don't, those don't seem to be so great to me. I want to go do something else. You're just not going to get a job. This is just not going to work out for you. So, yeah. so that that's, and, and this is totally independent of string theory. And, and what you see now is you see these things, I mean, I can give you a list if you want of the, here are the three or four hot topics of, of the last year or two, which you have to be working on if you want a job this year. And, you know, there are things, they're not string theory. Several of them are things which, you know, um, people like Bryant or Pat Klebin or whatever would, would, would tell you that are interesting things that came out of string theory. But there, um, there's a, a very, very, you have a very, very narrow <laughs> place for, you know, you're forced to work on a very, very narrow range of, of topics, which, um, you know, if you want a permanent job in this field and, and it's very, um, that's actually what's, what's kind of the underlying source of the problem, I think. So how do you break out of this self-fulfilling prophecy? Because you brought up Einstein. I think it's now impossible to do what he did where you can work at a patent office and also work on yeah, theoretical yeah. physics. It's become so complicated. You need so much funding. There's so much mental, physical currency that you need now to do research that you can't just probably come up with this breakthrough invention on your own. Like you have to go through these tracks. But if these tracks now offer such a narrow path, how do you actually break this this yeah. vicious cycle and get out of it. I don't know. I, I think the, the fact is that we, we, we really haven't. And, and this is one reason why the subject is, it, you know, is really not, not very healthy. Um, it's very hard. Yeah, you're right. I think, I think part of the problem is that the, again, this underlying problem is, is that the theory that you're trying to, the thing you're trying to do is extremely hard because the, the theories that we have are too good and you don't have ex experimental clues telling you how to improve them. So you're, you're, you're facing a, a much harder problem, even than Einstein was brought, was facing. And, and, you know, and, and it's true that, you know, just kind of going off and thinking about yourself about things is not the most promising way to, if you want, if you want to get new ideas and, and make progress on, on, on a difficult problem like this, you know, at least to me, I mean, I, th I think what, what's actually important is to be surrounded by, you know, other, you know, other really smart, knowledgeable people who are doing similar things, right? Sorry, who are doing similar things and to, um, and then you can get some inspiration and learn new things and learn something new and, and get a new idea from them. It just, just working by yourself is very, very hard. So yeah. it, I think that really is the problem. I think people often, you know, saying, oh, well, we should just kind of find, and, and, and it isn't so much, so much money. It's, and none of this is actually really that expensive, it, 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 but it, but it is more, you know, providing positions of people in an, in an, in an intellectually rich environment, you know, where they have enough money to live on and enough time to think about these kinds of things. And you know, it's not huge amounts of money, but for whatever reason, there are not that many jobs around like this. And, 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 and a lot of the problem is just the competitive nature of the field. It's just the fact that the fact that we produce 10 times more, five to 10 times more, um, PhDs and their jobs for is real is really is really a problem. But um, I, I unfortunately I don't think the solution is for some rich person to kind of fund people to go off and work by themselves and uh, on, on exotic ideas and uh, and that it's going to work. It's it's a little 
just thinking about it recently, it's a little bit like people, somebody is saying, well, you know, these, these, these people in the, in, in this huge plasma physics lab or something haven't been able to create a, um, a fusion reactor. So we should, you know, we, we should, but, but so the solution to this is to, is, is to, you know, give money to a bunch of people and tell them to go and work in their garages and design a fusion reactor. Well, you know, no, that's not going to work, work either. So I, I think you have to change the, I mean, I've always felt that you, you need to change what's going on at our great research institutions. And, 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 and yet you have to start by getting people to admit that, um, you know, if you won't admit that something is wrong, you really can't move forward. And, and, and what's been, I, I just find endlessly frustrating is looking at what's going on at some of the top places in the world and, and just seeing people's continuing refusal to even admit, you know, that that's, things haven't worked and it, that this is staring in their face. And some of this is, is due to, you know, the fact that you'd have to admit that the love of your life is really <laughs> highly problematic. Some of it is, you know, you'd have, it would create kind of the fact that you've devoted so much of your life to this and you people have been giving you all this money to do this and it hasn't worked. is just not something you want to admit if you want people to give you more money. And, um, there are a lot of reasons why people are not admitting this, but, but it's very frustrating. I cannot tell you how shocking it was for me when I actually discovered this bubble of SARS in, in academia because science is viewed as the bastion of empiricism, yeah. falsifiability. Like in science, you believe that people embrace all ideas and they will reject the ideas that can't be proven. And they often contrast science with religion for that matter. Yeah, yeah. But to notice that there's a some form of mythology generating within science itself and there's a pocket being created was shocking for me to discover because I viewed science as the ultimate. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's shocking. It is shocking, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very interesting what you pointed out and I hope it changes. Maybe there's someone who comes in who plays by the rules and while they're in the system ends up changing it. Fingers crossed. That's all I can hope for. <laughs> Before we move into our final closing questions, I would love it if you can interpret what I've built with the Lego. <laughs> what do you think these masterpieces are? Oh boy. I have no idea. Well, these, these are definitely eyes here. <laughs> these are eyes here. But uh, so this, this looks, this is some kind of a face. No, at least it certainly seems to be, but a, yeah. a face of what or who I have no, I, <laughs> no idea. And this thing... Oh, this is, this is much more difficult. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. That might be a head and on, on, on something, but, um, I don't know. <laughs> Some twisted version of reality, no symmetry in this, but there's definitely yeah. a creator. So that the devil's in the details. Okay. Let's go into some of our closing questions. What are some books, movies, role models that have strongly influenced you in your life? Uh, I was try, trying to remember. I mean, <laughs> a lot of the problem with it, books or things were role models. I then later on in life kind of decided this, maybe there, there was something, this was kind of problematic. <laughs> so actually I remember one of my experiences, I remember when I was a teenager was in learning about quantum mechanics was, you know, I was reading about the whole story of the history of quantum mechanics mm -hmm. and um, about, and some things written by people involved in this. And one is, um, Werner Heisenberg wrote wrote some. You know, there's there's some wonderful essays and some books and some books about, you know, 
about this birth of quantum mechanics and about his experience and about, you know, how this changed the view of the world. Across the frontiers? Across the frontier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking of. And, and so, and that, um, yeah, and I was very, very struck by that. And, uh, yeah, just this, uh, anyway, they're, 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 so I, I think I, I can very definitely recommend that. I mean, in later years though, I mean, you realize some of his stories are about, you know, oh, and, you know, I was with my friends and, you know, we're discussing these great ideas of philosophy and about, you know, the way the world works and philosophy and you know, we're, we're, you know, going on these hikes in the mountains around Munich or whatever. And, and then, then only later in life you start to realize, wait, you know, young, young blonde Aryan men going for hikes in the, in the mountains of the 1920s and, Hmm. <laughs> you start to realize that this is part of a German tradition, which did not end well at all. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's there's that about that, but 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 still, the, it, it's a great book. Yeah, Beyond the Frontier, Across the Frontiers. Yeah, across, and there there's that. Um, so that's I'm trying to trying to think what else has been. I can't think of anything recently that. Uh, but but that, that certain that that book was certainly very influential, and, and pretty much anything. Maybe. I can recommend that to anybody, anybody who doesn't know this whole kind of story of modern physics from Einstein's developing special relativity and general relativity and um, the way quantum mechanics developed during the 1920s. It, it's one of the great kind of romantic stories of humanity about how to, how all the, the, these things were figured out. And it's a, uh, anyway, there's, it, 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 it's just fascinating and reading about it from, there are a lot of, a lot of great books about it, but also, um, reading about it by some of the people who are there, like Heisenberg, certainly worthwhile. If you were granted one wish and you could get the answer to one of the biggest mysteries in the universe, what is the question that you would like to get the answer to? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, I mean, one of the, I guess the main question is, is this, is what I think about in much of the, much of the time is, you know, what is the, uh, you know, is there, It, it, you know, how is, is there some better, more more unified theory than the standard model, possibly including gravity? And and what does it work? What are, what's the math? What is the math, that mathematical structure that's going to make that work? So that's the yeah. I'm, we're all looking for that answer. <laughs> People are spending entire years yeah. looking for that answer. Okay, important question. What would you like your legacy to be? Well, I mean, I, 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 I don't know the, um, I'm actually pretty, <laughs> I'm actually, actually getting old enough to start worrying about such things that it's, uh, I'm actually 66 now and I'm actually starting to figure out, okay, well, you know, I have this weird position at Columbia and I should need to retire from it at some point, what should I do with my life? But it's, um, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of, uh, of these two books that I've written of the, um, I'm not even wrong. I think it, I think, you know, looking back at it, 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 it stands up, it was written quite a while ago, but it stands up very, very well. And, um, yeah. especially compared to other things that people were writing around the same time. And I, you know, and I stand behind, you know, just about everything in there, I think was, I'm, I'm very proud of that. There's, I also wrote this kind of textbook about quantum mechanics and representation theory, which I think, I mean, as years go on, the more I learn and when I teach the material again, I find more problems with what I wrote there, but, um, but I, I think that was actually a, a a different kind of book than what had been done before, and, I, and I'm actually quite proud of that. Um, 
And, and then, then very recently, last two or three years, I, I really have become much, very, very um, enthusiastic about these new ideas about twisters and about this. And so, I, you know, I, I really think there are some new ideas there, which I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've written something about them. I'm, I'm still working on them, but I, you know, I, I do, I'm anyway, <laughs> again, this may be a mistaken love affair, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually more and more convinced that these are things which are, are going to be important in the long term. I think so too. What advice do you have for young people? <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. I mean, I very often talk, talk to young people who are, um, you know, the undergraduates or graduate students, they want to, uh, you know, how do I have a career? And first of all, you know, how do I, how do I have a career? Do it. Well, how do I have a career in theoretical physics and do these things? And, and one thing I have to tell them as well, my, my career path was really odd and I can't recommend that one that that's not going to work probably again. But, uh, if you, I got very lucky in many ways, but unfortunately I think I have to tell more and more. I have to tell the students that you can't, the situation in theoretical physics is really, is just pretty grim. And this job situation you're putting yourself in really um, is, is really quite bad. So if you have any interest in both mathematics and physics, I, I tend to tell students, you really should probably go get a PhD in mathematics and that, you know, you're not going to, um, mathematicians aren't, aren't, you know, it's not part of a standard mathematics research program to work directly on these problems, but there's a huge, as I said, there's huge amounts of interesting stuff going on in math, which a lot of which has different connections to physics. And so, you know, you can, you can probably find something really interesting to work on that has some connection to physics, maybe it'll even someday lead to some advances in physics. And, um, and you actually can have a real career and, and, and have in a, in a healthy field and, and maybe get a job. So it's, that's, that's great <laughs> advice. If you have, if you have your choice between trying to get a, if you're interested in the same thing as I am and you have your choice between trying to get a math and a physics PhD, get a math PhD. <laughs> <laughs> that's good advice. So people interested in physics, go to maths. <laughs> okay. Final question. What do you think is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of all of this? Peter White. <laughs> I, 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 I really don't know. I owe my reaction to this question, whenever that people ask it is, you know, I understand why people are, you know, people see these ideas, fundamental ideas about physics, that these are, you know, everybody's interested in these kind of deep questions about what, what is this physical universe that we're, we're part of and, and, and when these, and, you know, you, you as a physicist know about it. So you must, you must know something really deep, but, um, I don't know. I, I guess I, I see that as very kind of disconnected of from the question of the meaning of life and 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 what you know and and humanity and and, and what human beings should really be doing with their time or how you should see your relation to what's going on around you. So I, I <laughs> my reaction to this question is often that you know you're really asking the wrong person. You're you know this is somebody who's been sitting around thinking about math and these ideas in physics is, is really not somebody who has anything critically helpful probably to tell you about the meaning of life or about, about, uh, about this kind of question. So on a personal level, were you able to derive a meaning for like your life or a purpose for yourself through math? No, no, it, it, it it's not, I, I think, and, and, and it, it's actually kind of maybe one of the difficult things about a career in this kind of math physics is that, 
it, it really is that there really is this very unusual, complete disjunction between your work, the kind of thing you're working on, and then, you know, having a, a healthy and fulfilling and worthwhile everyday existence, what you do every day and how yeah. you interact with the people around you. They're just, they're really two different things. And, uh, you know, and, and if, and, and really devoting yourself and really getting good at and really getting deeply involved in these questions about mathematical physics is actually not really very healthy for being a normal human being and being nice <laughs> and, and treating the people around you well and having a normal, it's not a decent life. They're really not. Yeah. So being good at, at, yeah, anyway, so, so, so you, you end up kind of having to manage this, this disjunction between these two different things in life. Professor, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, read your book, read your blog, where can they do so? Oh yeah. So, so the blog, I said, is easy to find. It's not, not even wrong. And, um, also I, I try to get to, uh, um, to maintain a fairly complete list of all the things that I've written and, um, talks that I've given and course materials from courses that I'm teaching on my website at the Columbia math department. So if you find my website, you'll find a fairly complete list of, uh, of all the things, anyway, th things I've been doing or that I've been doing, whatever I've been attempting to try to make available to people. I definitely recommend it. I definitely recommend it. People want to dive deep into Twister Theory, they can read Space Time is Right-Handed, yeah. the latest paper. Professor, thank you so much. It was an honor talking to you. Yeah, thank you.